So welcome everyone to Couch Talk. This is Dr. Anna Kabeca here with a special interview with one of my favorite people in the world, Dr. David Perlmutter. Now I'm sure you've heard his name. If not, you've heard his book from Smarter Kids at Kindergarten, Brain Recovery. Those are some of his old ones. His latest and greatest bestsellers have been Brain Maker and the Grain Brain book, as well as the Grain brain cookbook that really needs to be on all of our shelves for those of you that are listening and he has a new book coming out and I'm really interested in giving you guys the heads up scoop on what he's been researching what he's been finding and what he's put together in this really game-changing book for all of us again decades above our medical system and uh, for those of you Dr. David Perlmutter has been a mentor for me a mentor for functional medicine physicians, physicians, and health, you know, um, Adventists, really, all over the world. And I just have known him personally since, gosh, 2009, and am definitely a groupie of his as he's mentored me along the way in my career. I'm just so appreciative to have you here, Dr. Perlmutter, today to share your knowledge. Well, Anna, I am so delighted to be with you today and uh, looking forward to our interview. Well, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about, we want to talk a little bit about the new book that you have coming out and, you know, how it differs in the information that you're bringing to what we're constantly inundated with today. So, uh, Dr. Gebeka, it's been kind of an interesting past few years. Uh, Grain Brain, which came out in 2013, really looked at the damaging effects of a high sugar, high carbohydrate diet, especially uh, looked at gluten, uh, not just in terms of general health, but did tend to focus on the effects of these lifestyle choices on the brain. And that was followed more recently by BrainMaker, which looked at our gut bacteria, the microbes that live within us, and how we knew really nothing about that, but now we do, how the microbes living within us really are involved in so many important determinants of whether we're going to be healthy or not, whether we're going to be diabetic or not, fat or lean, or even at risk for, for brain degeneration. How do we take care of those gut bacteria and what is it that we're doing in our lives that might be damaging them? So Grain Brain and Brain Maker really talked about why uh, this stuff is happening. The new book, which is called The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, talks about how. How do we then take this information and make the necessary lifestyle changes so that we can reduce inflammation. And that's, in fact, the cornerstone of about everything bad that you don't want to happen. So how do we look at the low-carb diet? How do we look at reducing sugar? How do we look at, look at getting away from gluten? And also, how do we look at nurturing our gut bacteria to achieve a much better state of health day-to-day -day and also pave the way for health and fitness in the long term? You know. Here in America, if you live to be age 85, you have a 50-50 chance of becoming an Alzheimer's patient. We now know that to a significant degree, Alzheimer's, for example, is a preventable disease. And I really uh, believe that it's time that we have that discussion and really get the word out that here's a disease that has no treatment at all and yet significantly is preventable. And that's pretty much, you know, to answer your question, that's pretty much the focus of what, what my research has been about the past decade. 
And you've dug deep into understanding the microbiome and the different bacterias and probiotics and prebiotics and really getting the word out about that and how to uh, capture a healthy microbiome, right? And, and so that's been fascinating for me to learn in, in your book, Brain Maker. I mean, I just have to ask on a side question, is there a reason that it's abbreviated BM? I'm just curious. You know, uh, you know, it's funny because prior to publication, all of the emails back and forth between me and the writer and the publisher and everything, that was the subject, BM. And it, it, it got to be very funny, but, um, but uh, who knows? I mean, maybe people will think about it and really recognize that uh, it's time to get real serious about what's going on within our intestines. You know, it's always been off, off limits, taboo. The only people that are going to talk about it are gastroenterologists. But what a, what a moment that you and I are having this discussion. And, you know, we are looking at the implications of things going on in the gut in terms of your brain health and your heart and your joints and your skin for that matter. What's going on in your gut manages the level of inflammation within your body. And having said that, uh, when you think about what diseases are inflammatory, that means the gut is throwing a very wide net. The inflammatory issues are coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, arthritis, skin issues, psoriasis. These are all diseases characterized by inflammation. Inflammation has its origin in the gut. So we have to pay really very, very diligent and strict attention to what is going on in the gut. When we have a diet, for example, that uses artificial sweeteners, we dramatically change the bacteria that live within us. Suddenly, we lose diversity. And when that happens, we have a different array of bacteria in the gut because they're being, their environment has been changed by artificial sweeteners. We have a different set of bacteria then that think we are starving. And what do they do? They cause us to gain weight, causes us to lose our ability to handle sugar so we become diabetic. The risk of becoming diabetic in people drinking a lot of artificially sweetened beverages is dramatically increased, even more so than when they drink uh, regular sugar sweetened beverages. I'm not saying you should drink the regular Coke, what I am saying is keep in mind that everybody's trying to go sugar-free, uh, no-cal beverages. When you do that, if they're artificially sweetened, which is the Diet Coke, the Diet Mr. Pib, you are changing your gut bacteria and making much worse your chances of obesity and chances of being diabetic. Think about that. The more it's diet drinks you drink with no calories, the larger will your belly become and the greater will be your risk for Alzheimer's for that matter. Who knew? And it's like the the worst trick that you can play on women, especially women and men, is that here, drink this diet drink and you're going to um, get slim. And number one, it tastes horrible. Once you've been off it for a while, you can't stand the taste of it. Number two, it's making you fatter, insulin resistant, increasing your risk exactly of right. metabolic and syndrome. It doesn't seem, it's, it's so uh, paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, here you are doing your best. You can say, look, I know I should avoid sugar and, and calories, so I'm gonna drink Diet Coke uh, or Diet 7-Up, I'm not just picking on one. And you know the reality is you're, you're making your situation worse and doctors are telling people drink the diet drinks. And yet, you know, this was a very big study that came out of Israel. It was both an animal study and a human study that showed dramatic changes in the gut bacteria. 
creating an, an environment in the gut that lets your body think that it is starving and therefore has to hold on to every possible calorie and slows the transit time in your gut so that your food stays in your gut longer so you can extract more calories, not a good situation. So, you know, when I see patients who say, hey, I'm drinking, I don't drink any Cokes or any of that stuff, I just drink Diet Coke all day long and they're gaining weight, I used to think, no, they've got to be waking up in the middle of the night and hitting the refrigerator or something's wrong with this story. But now we know there's a powerful mechanism underlying why people drinking Diet Cokes and chewing uh, artificially sweetened gum, which is pretty much all the gum that people chew these days, or even taking various fiber products that are sweetened with aspartame that we see on the shelves in the grocery ah. store. Yeah. These things are all damaging the gut bacteria and creating an environment that amplifies inflammation, the cornerstone of these dreaded diseases, leads to obesity and leads to diabetes. The reason I am so focused on diabetes is because it's preventable. And if you become a type two diabetic, you have quadrupled your chance of then becoming an Alzheimer's patient, a disease for which there is no treatment. I gotta get this message out. And again, thank you for letting me get the message out because people are being terribly misled. So we've called Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes, right? Just kind of a continuum. And you've um, shared before how the increase in your hemoglobin A1C directly increases your risk of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease. What numbers are you looking for us to keep our hemoglobin A1C below? Well, let me take a step back if I can and explain what this hemoglobin A1C test Thank is. You. If you're diabetic, you know what your A1C is. If you're watching television at night, watching the evening news, you're seeing ads for people taking drugs to lower their A1C. And what A1C really represents is kind of a, a long-term 90-day average of your blood sugar. But what it actually is, is sugar binding to a protein, which is called hemoglobin. Now, the reason that's important is when sugar binds to protein, two things happen. It increases inflammation and it increases the production of damaging chemicals called free radicals. So now when we look at that hemoglobin A1C, we realize what it's really a marker of. It's a marker of inflammation in your body and it's a marker of what we call free radical mediated stress. More increased, uh, rather more levels of, higher levels of these free radicals which are damaging our cells or damaging our DNA. That's what the A1C test means. So I believe that uh, people should all have their A1C checked, whether they're diabetic or not, because it's such a powerful blood test and yeah. it's simple and any doctor can do it. I like to see the A1C around 5.2 or so. Now, you know, under 6.4, normally your doctor is gonna give you a pat on the back and say, hey, everything's great, you're not, di you're not diabetic, with the word yet <laughs> hanging in the background. So you can go to your doctor and come out with a hemoglobin A1C of six and your doctor's gonna say, hey, cool, don't worry about it, you're not diabetic, everything's fine. The reality is that there is a perfect relationship between A1C and shrinkage of your brain's memory center. The higher your A1C, the smaller is your brain's memory center called the hippocampus. So by the time you get to an A1C of 5.9 or 6, your, your A1C is already correlated to a shrinking brain center that deals with memory. 
So you want it to be as low as possible because when it comes to your hippocampus, your brain's memory center, size really does matter. There's a perfect correlation between shrinkage of your hippocampus and decline in your memory function. We see a small hippocampus in Alzheimer's. So we want to keep our A1C low. How do we do it? By restricting our intake of sugar and carbohydrates. You've written on like ketosis and Alzheimer's disease. Talk a little bit about that too, because we're going to go low carbohydrate, restricting carbohydrates, and this you're going to elucidate more in your grain, brain, whole life plan, which I'm so excited about. But um, so we're the ketogenic diet and Alzheimer's risk and how that has an impact. Ketogenic really means that you have altered your diet in such a way that instead of always burning carbohydrates and sugar all day long, your body is starting to tap into using your own body fat as a fuel or the fat that you may be eating. And it really, you know, according to author Gary Taubes, who wrote Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, um, it really is the state that humans have been in uh, for as long as we've been on this planet. Nora Gedgaudis in her wonderful book called Primal Mind, Primal Body uh, really talks about that as well, that really we've been in ketosis, mild ketosis, burning fat for as long as we've been here because we've never had access to carbs. And it turns out that the actual human requirement for carbohydrates in the diet is none, zero grams per day. We don't need carbs. Now, we should eat certain carbs. That gives us dietary fiber. Uh, but the point is we don't need carbs. We can burn fat. And it turns out that when our bodies are in ketosis or in we are, when we are on a ketogenic diet and we're burning fat, number one, it's a far more um, efficient fuel, giving us much more energy per gram. But it does so uh, by producing much less damaging free radicals. It turns out that the brain does wonderfully when it burns fat as opposed to burning sugar or carbs. Now, we all learned in high school biology that, oh, you have to have sugar because your brain burns glucose. The, the reality is nothing is further from the truth. The brain loves to burn fat and it does so far more efficiently. Matter of fact, now there is an FDA approved medical food. You can go to the pharmacy, have a doctor write a prescription, uh, and it gives people a special type of fat to make them more ketotic, more burning fat, which is proven helpful for the brain. And that's being marketed now as an Alzheimer's uh, therapy because it's been shown that it does, in fact, increase brain performance a little bit. Well, what I tell people to do is cut your carbs, cut your sugar, and add in a couple of tablespoons of coconut oil every day. Hey. There's some merit to the bulletproof coffee idea of adding coconut oil and butter, fat, uh, to your coffee. So fat is back, not just for your general health, but really for your brain. We, your brain loves to burn fat. If you wanna be sharp and protect your brain in the long run, you gotta be more ketotic, as you talked about. You know, Burn more fat and get rid of the sugar and carbs. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, that was one area as we get into menopausal health, right, and and my area of focus as we marry gynecology with neurology, right, was the fact that these low-carb diets made me keto crazy, and I was like, oh, I can't do it. But what you really put into plan and what I've worked on in my menopause plans is combining alkalinizing foods, right, lots of greens, you know, lots Did of those. Did you say keto crazy? Keto crazy. Oh, I mean, you I totally go Good. Okay. keto crazy. You get neurotransmitter haywireness on a low carb diet for women, and it's different for men probably. But it's the reason, like, I was like, what's going on here? But if you check, like, I do the urine test strips, I created the pH and ketone test strips. So you just, it's not ideal, but it's a marker. And check your urine for your pH and your ketones. And get alkaline first is what I tell women. So your greens, your fermented vegetables that you recommend you put in your menus. And lots of greens. And that, when greens you're alkaline. Greens or greens? Greens, greens. Okay, no good. Greens, I want to be clear no greens, here. Because we want to get into ketosis. Greens, like beet greens and kale and you know, the cruciferous vegetables, all those good hormone balancing vegetables too. But you want your body alkaline. And when we're indoors and when we're stressed, we're so acidic. Add that with ketosis. We that get that keto crazy combination. But when you're alkaline and on a ketogenic plan, oh my gosh, brilliance, energy, hormone balance, lose the hot flashes, lose the fat. And it's harder for women than it is for men, how we were designed. But it's fascinating because especially in this menopausal shift, it's harder for us to get into ketosis. It's harder for us to get and stay alkaline. So, you know, checking and making sure that we are makes a huge difference. And that changes the lives of so many people. And that's why I'm so passionate about your Grain Brain Whole Life plan and that coming out and putting that into perspective for people in a way that says, you know, let's get this together, let's make sense of it because you don't want us walking around keto crazy. You got to keep us getting those greens on board and the bone broth and the alkalinizing minerals and and those factors that will help our balance our hormones, which is that part of that marriage between gynecology and neurology is where the microbiome, our GI health, right, our GI health helps with hormonal balance too. And when that's out of balance, that's been on an acidic high glucose diet, high carb diet. I mean, that's just you, type three out, type three diabetes. We're on the road to that unless we make the shift. What's well, true, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, hormones, and uh, you know, understand that uh, enzymes for processing hormones and uh, enzymes for detoxification of environmental chemicals that may mimic hormones in our bodies are taking place, are created even at the level of the gut in the gut, uh, in the liver. So it, it is a very powerful argument, uh, again, uh, in terms of nurturing the gut bacteria, the microbiome, because the, the, uh, the modification of these environmental chemicals that may look like hormones takes place under the direction of gut bacteria. And gut bacteria are important in the manufacture of the neurochemicals that are so important, the happy chemical serotonin. Uh, for example, gut bacteria play an important role in how our bodies create uh, serotonin. And in fact, 90% of that neurotransmitter, brain transmitter, isn't made in the brain, it's made in the gut. So we have to reposition our lens and look at the gut in terms of how it's affecting uh, gynecology, gastroenterology, neurology, and all of the ologies and recognize that it's really time for us to to be so specific in how we look at the body and disease processes and take a step back 
and say what are the leverage points that are affecting every part of the body and the gut is on the top of that list. Yeah, and to further that, and I know um, when we talk about how important GI health is for brain development, that starts early, that starts in pregnancy as the OBGYN, I wanna talk with you about this a little bit and the increased risk of C-section increasing associated with increased risk of neurologic issues in our children and what you thought about vaginal you know, inoculation of a C-section baby and what um, your feelings are about that. Well, I won't take credit for thinking of that. Uh, it was actually a, uh, brought forward by a Dr. Maria Dominguez-Bello at NYU. And let me take a step back. So we know that when a baby passes through the birth canal, he or she is anointed with the bacteria that live in mother's birth canal. And that just doesn't happen to be there. Uh, this is a, a system of transferring bacteria to the newborn uh, that is seen in mammals who are born that way, in birds who, when the baby is born, pecks at the shell. Uh, we see it in fish, in insects, in uh, turtles, reptiles, uh, mollusks, and even sponges. So this is a, uh, a system of transferring information to the newborn that dates back 350 million years. So suddenly we've developed a new way of delivering children where they don't get that information at the time they're born. Their faces are not covered with the stuff that contains bacteria. Those bacteria that that child picks up passing through the birth canal are loaded with information. They're instructing that child as to what the world is like. What is the current environment? Do we have food scarcity? What time of year is it? What has my mother's diet been like? Uh, it gives that child the bacteria that he or she will need to break down mother's milk, to extract nutrients from the milk that it's then going to nurse and, and, and uh, receive. It's building a robust immune system and helping to temper inflammation. When a child is born by C-section, that doesn't happen. And that child then gains bacteria from the operating room, from what's on the surgeon's hands, what's floating around, and that has a dramatic impact on that child for the rest of his or her life. You've doubled the chance of obesity of that child when he or she is an adult. You've increased his or her chances dramatically of type one or autoimmune diabetes, increased risk by about 70%, about an 80% increased risk of that child developing celiac disease. Uh, you have doubled that child's risk for ADHD and, uh, and at least double that child's risk for autism. Now these are serious issues that we need to talk about. That's published literature in peer-reviewed journals and the, the citations are in BrainMaker. We really have to have discussions with parents before birth, uh, before giving birth, uh, saying look, there's a lot more going on with this decision than simply how big will my scar be and when will I be able to go home from the hospital. It's a major event in the birth of that child. So there's a wonderful time and place for a C-section. It saves lives, it's wonderful, we all are grateful. But now one third of all births in America are born in this way. It's hard to imagine that one third of all births are so complicated for either mother or baby that we have to deliver them by C-section. So again, the discussion needs to be yeah, your scar is going to be uh, as long as it's going to be, and you know, you're going to get out of the hospital a couple days later. But more importantly, 
Uh, if you don't deliver your child vaginally, there are some significant increased risks that you should know about right now before you make the decision. Now, certainly there are emergencies and to save a child you do a C-section. Everybody agrees with that. But when you, again, uh, choose it as an elective and the child is born by C-section because, oh, it's convenient, um, or my last baby was born by C-section, I know I have to do this baby by C-section, and that we know isn't true. There has been some discussion, well, what can we do to make up for the fact that that child didn't get uh, that inoculation by passing through the birth canal? And that's where this technique develop, developed by a doctor at NYU, Dr. Maria Dominguez-Bello, was put forward, and she suggests putting a sponge in the birth canal prior to the C-section taking it out, doing the C-section, keeping it moist and, and uh, warm. Then when the baby's born, you rub that stuff all over the baby's face. Now, it's just beginning to be studied. We don't know what it's actually going to do. The worrisome part of that story is that virtually 100% of women in America who undergo a C-section get a nice big blast of antibiotics intravenously when they're being they're in the waiting room to go into the operating room and we don't know what a dramatic change that's going to have on their vaginal microbiome uh, so you know these are questions that need to be answered but I think the take-home message here is that there's a lot of uh, concern about being born by c-section that needs to be on the table now people need to talk about it I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I've seen the rates and just my practice as an obstetrician for C-section increase from, you know, 20% in community hospitals to 50% in our small community. And it is, it is devastating. I think it's important, the whole, not only the microbiome, but the process of pressure and the mechanics of vaginal birth delivery have beneficial effects on no our No question about it. On mother so, and baby, I might add mother and baby and two and then to further on is to again a quick plug to encourage breastfeeding because we're passing the microbiome and you know imparting a healthy immune system onto the babies through breastfeeding too so yeah i think we really do need to revisit the whole c-section um scare and and really change the obstetric practices and the medical legal aspects of the obstetric practices which have you know, push these higher rates of C-section as well as inductions. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that there are many obstetricians who are going to be comfortable in having the second child born vaginally if the first one was born by C-section. And yet, right. you and I both know that that's in your literature. It can be done, and it it probably should be tried unless there's some other overwhelming uh, issue like uh, you know the mother's diabetic and the baby's uh, large or something like that. So. I think we have to rephrase our discussion of, of C-section versus vaginal delivery, not just with how long you're in the hospital and the size of your scar, but now take this new information into consideration to help parents make the right decision. Yeah, and with that too, you know, the antibiotics that are put in the baby's eyes in case there's chlamydial conjunctivitis. I mean, the chance of that, because we've tested the mom for a chlamydia, like why is that a routine practice? It's right. just because it's a checkbox. It's uh, old habits die hard. And I think you brought up a good point, and that is, uh, you know, the liability issues. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, when our children were born, they came around with the, the silver, the, the drops. And, uh, and I, we said, no. And they said, but you have to put drops. I said, well, what are those drops for? Well, we don't want your child to have gonorrhea in its eyes, 
And I said, well, my wife doesn't have gonorrhea, so uh, we're going to forego the drops. We had to sign papers. We had to yes. uh, call the president of the United States. It's it some crazy <laughs> thing. You know, it was, uh, I, I like rocking the boat, though, you can be sure. Yeah, I know. Like question, question the practices. Absolutely. All those vaccines at one time. Eh, that's not studied either. So let's not create an experimental population. So much to be said there. And so our microbiome is, is affected at birth and even before birth and just probiotics in pregnancy and probiotics postpartum and reducing our reliance on antibiotics and all those things where our food choices. something very important, and that is the idea of taking a probiotic during pregnancy. In other words, prenatal probiotic. Yes. And there's, there's some really wonderful literature that's coming out now showing uh, that, you know, the, that the gut bacteria of the mother dramatically affect the health of the newborn and then the child-to-be. Uh, especially as it relates to allergy and what's called atopic disease and allergic conjunctivitis, things like that. And um, so we're seeing now that the notion of prenatal probiotics, and I think, uh, you know, you pretty soon see in the health food stores, you will see prenatal probiotics being recommended and you'll see those products. So, uh, you know, very intriguing. So. I want to just mention one thing, it's kind of a plug, but on my new book, which is The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, if people go to my website, which is drperlmutter.com, no, yeah, drperlmutter.com, I don't want to get mixed up with Facebook, but drperlmutter.com, I'm giving everybody uh, who, who pre-orders that book, we're sending them a free DVD of my uh, public television program, uh, which is Brain Change. So they're going to get that DVD and learn about carbs and sugar and gluten in the brain and it's really the the a public television program that i did based upon the book grain brain so we're sending that out for free to everybody who pre-orders the book they just have to email their receipt or something along those lines fantastic so for um pre-order from your website at drperlmutter.com and watch the dvd while you're waiting the book's being released in november correct sure to be another bestseller and while they're waiting i'm going to plug your brain maker book too uh -huh. because just love your Brain Maker book, and you all need to get this book too. Just cutting edge information. We really go deep into the microbiome there. And as we end, so want to ask you one more question about the microbiome. And let's talk about kissing and the microbiome. <laughs> I've emailed to you about this before. Like, okay, like what's the study say? Because I think of biblically the a concept of soul ties, right? With um, it's true, and there is a uh, a dramatic exchange of organisms that happens. Even it's, it's actually intimate kissing was was how the study was kissing. defined. Yeah. Uh, and I guess we can think about that for a moment. What is intimate versus a peck on the cheek? Uh, I'll leave that up to anyone's imagination. But I think it's pretty much when fluids are exchanged, and it really brings to question. You know, others of our practices that we engage in with uh, other people uh, and how there may be exchange, and there are exchanges of uh, microorganisms during all kinds of things that uh, where things are, or fluids are exchanged. So that study has, in fact, been, uh, been looked at. That, that study, uh, rather, did, was published. And there's a dramatic exchange, and it shows that people who intimately kiss with time uh, that their microbiomes of their mouth, both of them become very, very similar. So there is an exchange of organisms that do take up residence uh, in the mouth of the other person 
uh, that you are kissing and uh, do change that person's oral microbiome. Uh, so it might be a very advantageous thing. I would think it would unlikely be harmful. So you know, we, we've got to just reframe our whole uh, sense of bugs and bacteria. You know, I say bacteria and, and to people they think germs, bad, get, wash right. the hands, bacteria are all bad. Almost all the bugs on and in your body are helping you right now. They're making vitamins, they're detoxing you, they're helping shore up your gut lining, they're making neurotransmitters, all these wonderful things. And the truth is that within us we all have bad bugs right now, but they're being held in check by, by, our, by our, when we take away the good bugs, then the bad bugs can do bad things. For example, take an antibiotic and kill off a lot of your good bacteria, and suddenly this bug called Clostridium difficile, that most of us carry right now, I probably have it, you probably have it, when you take away the good bugs, all of a sudden C. diff can, can multiply and can put you in the hospital, and it'll kill 30,000 Americans this year. So that's something to think about, and it only happened because people changed their gut bacteria by abusing an antibiotic. So I guess in closing, I wanna vote for the bugs and, and, and say that we really have to be grateful that they are there and we have to nurture them. You know, we have 100 trillion organisms in our gut and we say when a woman is pregnant, she has to be careful because now she's eating for two. And I would challenge that and say, look, pregnant or not, everybody on the planet is eating for 100 trillion because the gut bacteria and other microbes eat what you give them and what you give them is what you eat so that'll help reframe uh, the notion of your food choices now it's not just what you think's good for you in terms of fat and carbohydrates protein fiber etc it's what is good for your gut bacteria because that is the key to health that is, and the diversity matters, and not just what we eat, right, but how we eat and how we live, and so, so excited for your Grain Brain Whole Life Plan to come out, and encourage our listeners to go to drperlmutter.com and get that DVD, get the book, you know it's going to be awesome, and really, thank you so much, David, for being here today and being with me, there's so many more things I can ask. I look forward to it, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. And video. Thank you. And I forgot.